You're listening to Soundside. I'm Libby Denkman. The Lummi Nation declared a state of emergency in September after they lost five tribal members in one week to overdose deaths. The tribe's chairman, Tony Hilaire, testified before the U.S. Senate Committee on Indian Affairs last month. Just yesterday, we had a, a funeral of a 26-year-old uh, Lummi woman who uh, passed away from drug overdose, leaves behind two children that uh, will grow up with now without a mother. And uh, these aren't just... Uh, anyone to us. These are our family. These are the people we grow up with. These are our future chairmen and chairwomen, our future cultural leaders, language speakers, the ones who will carry the torch uh, into the next generations. Overdose deaths in Native communities have been increasing in recent years. And American Indian and Alaskan Native populations had the highest drug overdose death rates of any racial or ethnic group in both 2020 and 2021, according to the CDC. Elise Wild is the senior editor of Native News Online. You know, Indian country has been on the front lines of the opioid crisis for a long time. And now we know it's, you know, we refer to it as an overdose crisis because of the proliferation of fentanyl and the drug supply. And it's being found more and more in non-opioid recreational drugs like cocaine and methamphetamine. So Native communities experience the highest deadly overdose rates in the country from 2019 to 2020. Deadly overdose rates for Native Americans rose by almost 40 percent according to the latest data from the CDC, which is pretty shocking. So Native leaders, what we're hearing is what we've been hearing for a long time, is that this is a a crisis to the most extremist extent in these communities. A lot of Native leaders are saying that they are in danger of losing an entire generation to fentanyl. You know, grandparents are raising their grandchildren, and it's beyond time for action to be taken. And the U.S. Senate Committee on Indian Affairs has been holding a number of hearings looking into fentanyl in Native communities specifically. You've covered some of those proceedings. What's been going on? So in October, Washington State Senator Maria Cantwell uh, sent a letter to the Senate Committee on Indian Affairs requesting hearings on how the fentanyl crisis is impacting Indian country. And that letter followed the string of several fentanyl overdoses in the Lummi Nation that you guys mentioned earlier. The first hearing was held in November, and that brought tribal leaders to the table to give their perspectives on the crisis. And that hearing was the first on the issue in more than five years. And at that hearing, tribal leaders have been saying what they've been saying for a long time, you know, that this is this is decimating their communities. And they also brought up factors that contribute to opioid use in their communities, such as intergenerational trauma from broken treaty promises, forced removal, the Indian boarding school era. We also at that hearing heard something that is pretty well known in Indian country and might be a new concept for non-natives, but that is that culture is prevention, culture is healthcare, and culturally focused native-led solutions are critical to keeping people alive and healing from this overdose crisis. Now, last week's hearing brought lawmakers to the table to give their perspectives on where to place federal resources to help Indian country through this. That hearing was very focused on the pervasively underfunded and understaffed law enforcement in tribal communities and how a checkered jurisdiction makes prosecuting non-tribal drug offenders very difficult. And these have always been issues. A point of discussion during the hearing was the Bureau of Indian Affairs. They were kind of grilled for not offering competitive pay and benefits for its officers and having low rates of recruitment. Those same lawmakers that are discussing this are responsible for funding the BIA. So last week's hearing, very focused on the 
disparities in tribal law enforcement, which again are are not new. And you know, yes, law enforcement on tribal communities does need more support. They also need support for emergency responders. You know, in a lot of tribal nations, you call 911 and that ambulance is coming from hours away sometimes. But primarily what was brought up at the hearing, but wasn't a large focus of it was again, native led harm reduction and addiction treatment needs resources, needs support, because at the end of the day, that's really what sovereignty is. It's their sovereign right to create and execute solutions for their communities. And studies show that cultural activities, ceremonies, rituals, even language increases the efficacy of addiction care uh, in these communities. Mm. So you mentioned that there was talk about increasing resources for tribal law enforcement on tribal lands and this kind of loophole that allows drug trafficking to flourish in some areas of Indian country. Are there any other solutions on the table when it comes to either funding treatment or in some way supporting these communities for this culturally led treatment that you are talking about? So the Tribal Opioid Settlement, which is a total of $1.5 billion that is going to be dispersed among all 575 federally recognized tribes. The approved uses of that funding is for culturally appropriate and culturally tailored treatment and harm reduction targeted towards this issue. And, and that's wonderful. That's great. So that, you know, that does give tribes funding to start doing this but they could always use more. You know, these communities do a lot with what little that they have and what they need is is consistent support and funding that isn't prescriptive, that allows them to truly tailor solutions for the needs of their communities. At the most recent hearing, Senator Tester, John Tester from Montana, said that the disproportionate impact of fentanyl and other opiates on Native communities is the fault of the U.S. government. This has been a train wreck for a long time. And um, through multiple administrations, through multiple, uh, regardless which party has been in the White House. And I found that to be really interesting. What was the reasoning he put forward behind that? Sure, sure. So so Tester was one of the, the last lawmakers to speak at the hearing and lob his questions to the panel. And what I took from his comments was the, again, it was very focused on law enforcement was, you know, we're, we're here again, we're talking about law enforcement in tribal communities. It's always been an issue. We know it. They're, they're underfunded. The BIA is underfunded. And actually several tribes have filed lawsuits against the federal government for the underfunding of their law enforcement departments, which has led to, you know, increase in rates of crime on reservations. And that, you know, it's not new. So Tester's comments spoke to the ongoing issue of just lack of funding for Indian country as a whole. And at the end of the day, those lawmakers are responsible for funding the departments, the organizations, the bureaus that take care of Indian country. Is there anything else that the U.S. Senate plans on this issue or what's the next step? here, Elise, um, in terms of getting this funding out and potentially finding more solutions to the crisis? That is a great question. We are kind of standing by for next steps to see what lawmakers are going to do. Um, In the meantime, there is the Parity for Tribal Law Enforcement Act on the table. It was introduced in July. It is a bipartisan bill that would amend the Indian Law Enforcement Act and authorize tribal officers to be considered federal law enforcement officers capable of enforcing federal law. 
you know, and tribal leaders are, are behind this, arguing that like it would better enable them to regulate illegal drug trafficking in their communities. So that's on the law enforcement side. Um, and we are really hoping to see funding for behavioral health, addiction care and harm reduction coming down as well. Elise Wilde is the senior editor of Native News Online. Elise, thanks very much. Thank you so much. As Elise mentioned, there's research showing that integrating cultural traditions with Western medicine can have more successful outcomes for Native patients struggling with addiction. Misty Napiahi is vice chair of the Tulalip Tribes. Earlier this year, they opened a new medically-assisted treatment center that provides methadone. It's on reservation land near Marysville, and it's open to Native and non-Native patients alike. When we spoke recently, Napiahi said the Tulalip tribes have also started providing wraparound services like shelter to tribal members. They purchased 20 pallet shelters, which are low-barrier units for people actively using. They're probably about less than a mile inside the interior of the reservation. And we had the neighbors come out and they were freaking out. I mean, we held community meetings. We had the NIMBY problem. But we had to stay resolute in that decision and push through because we know it's the right thing to do. And what we found out is that sheltering them has actually decreased the crimes that the our members were committing on other people's homes. Our tribal members were saying, I wake up in the morning and I got homeless people outside my house filling up buckets with water, you know, or I got homeless people breaking into my cars looking for shelter or grabbing a bottle of water, what was ever in the car they were trying to get. And so those crimes have come down. And when you co-locate them, they were, they're located in one area. It's easier for our first responders to respond because we know exactly where they're at. And then for our service providers, they know where to find them and go and create those relationships to build that trust between the person who's addicted and the service provider so that they will start to listen to the service provider as somebody that they can trust and lean on. And then that's how we get them into treatment. And really what we're finding in, you know, this is in also being discovered through mainstream science is that most people that are addicted to opioids have an immense amount of trauma in their life, unresolved trauma. And so I like to think about the way that we can start to humanize people who are addicted to opioids is to just see them as that child or that individual that went through that amount of trauma that would lead to something like this. It had to be extensive. And that opioid helps them with that emotional pain. And so that's why they become addicted. And so Tulalip has been, you know, we, we do our best to stay on top of the research, on top of the best practices of what's going on. So we can treat them in the best way possible because, you know, we want all of our community members to be healthy and and live lives that, that promote healthy living opposed to this. And so we know that to deal with that trauma, we need trauma-informed caregivers, trauma-informed staff. And so the tribes also put a lot of money towards training our therapists in EMDR therapy, which is trauma therapy that's been wildly successful for people who have seen war and combat. That's been a very successful program in our community. So we're starting at the root cause. We need to get rid of the root cause so that they can get over this addiction and move on with their life. I've read Native leaders talking about the ways that there's the cultural component to 
trauma-informed care for Native communities as well, because, of course, you have colonial legacies that extend today. You have issues of many people's um, families were affected by boarding schools and other racist policies. Talk to me about the ways that you combine that scientifically backed trauma-informed care with the kind of cultural knowledge that the Tulalip tribes are able to bring to this. I think the the largest component that we can bring culturally is that we meet people where they're at. And, you know, we lost our way. We started to judge our membership and we fell into our human condition. And so when we got outside of that and said, no, that's not who we are. We meet people where they're at. We love them. And we, we see them as one of us. So if you're one of us, we cannot let you out there just to be on your own going through the, probably the worst parts of your entire life. And with that, what we've been able to accomplish is a lot of the people that are in recovery went on canoe journey this year. They participated from the beginning to the end. They were fully integrated. They were singing. They were dancing. They were being part of a community. And that's what we forget about the drug world. In the drug world, they have a large community that they love and they feel well taken care of from the other people in that community. They call them their family. The only way you're going to get somebody out of that addiction is to help them rebuild a healthy family, a healthy lifestyle. And so we had to wrap around them and not throw them away and disregard them as less than because they're suffering in an addiction. We know for a fact that culture and ceremony really helps our members. And so with the canoe journey, seeing a large number of tribal members participate, we also are having a large number of our um, tribal members in recovery coming back to the longhouse where we hold our winter ceremonies. And so when you come back to the longhouse, it's like coming home. And so that's what they're feeling. That's what they're getting a sense of. And then the longhouse has its own community that wraps around them and shows them love and support. I know that the Tulalip tribes also opened a medication-assisted opioid treatment center called Quilcita Creek Counseling earlier this year. Can you talk to me about the center and how it's going in its first year of operation? The center's amazing. What we've realized, and, and we knew it when we were building it, is that we didn't build big enough. And we're having great successes there. The center is for anybody for tribal members and non-tribal people. My mom is currently a patient there and I finally have my mom back. My mom too got stuck in this horrible world of pain pills. You know, she shattered her ankle, got Percocets for two years from her doctor and then they cut her off and then she started to use heroin. She lost her job. She went down the same path that so many people go down And as soon as our MAT center was built, she was one of their first patients. She's not tribal and she was one of their first patients. She loves it. And the people that go there love it. They're our mouthpiece for the community. They recruit people. They recruit people from their family, their drug family to come in and get services and get help. And really what we're learning about opioid addiction is methadone and suboxone, you know, for years, so many people have turned their noses up to those medications because we see it as, oh, you're still getting high. The reality is it basically eliminates the cravings. They get to come back to their families and be a part of a family. And I mean, my mom is my mom again. 
And I never thought I would see that day, to be really honest with you. I thought this drug and this addiction would kill her. And it just changes their lives profoundly. And so we have capacity for 150 patients. We're at 120. And we're currently expanding operations. So at the when the expansion's over, we will be able to accept 300 patients. I am so happy to hear you say that about your mom. And I, I have to say, I have a a little tear in my eye just hearing that um, you have hope about her future and the fact that you, as her daughter, are for the first time seeing your mom come back to you. That is such a powerful statement. And I'm so happy for you, Misty. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. You you mentioned that for the pallet shelters, there was some community pushback. You know, for methadone clinics, we've seen community pushback in Linwood, for example, a clinic had planned to distribute methadone, but they had a lot of neighbors protest having that in their backyard. Did the tribal government see pushback to the Quilcita clinic as well? Or how was the process of citing that and actually getting it up and running? There was, it was funny, there was pushback. It was limited, but there was pushback from other departments that used the building because it's the old HP Hewlett Packard factory that we bought. It's a huge building. And we didn't know where exactly to put the MAC clinic because we wanted it close to a bus line. We wanted it close to town. And so it was the perfect spot was in the HP building, which shares space with our law enforcement, our tribal court. <laughs> and so there was pushback there. And and, and then we were scared that people wouldn't come because the cops are there and tribal courts there. So we had to go into MOUs with both of those parties and say, when there's a patient on property, they will not be arrested if there's a warrant. They will not be harassed. They will be able to move freely through this clinic and, and not have law enforcement down their throat. So they can feel trust in arriving at the clinic. This is what I want people to know. For those people who don't want methadone clinics in their neighborhood, it's not what you think it's going to be. There's not people in the parking lot. That's what we thought, too. We thought, oh, my God, there's going to be the most disenfranchised parts of our community in front of it, in their cars. That's not actually not what happens. Because the clinic's open for, you know, seven hours of dosing, you do have patients going in and out of the building. But once they're in the building, they're in there and they're getting, they're being seen by a doctor. They're getting therapy. They're getting dosing. Um, we offer childcare. That it's, it's completely different. There's not, people don't see what they think they're going to see. And it doesn't impact your community in the ways that you think it will. It improves your community because the people that you're afraid of, that you don't want to have in your neighborhood, they're actually getting medicine that helps them. And helps them not have the behaviors that you're afraid of. And so we have to quit being afraid of this part of our community. They're humans. They're our family members. Those are people's children. That's somebody's son and daughter. And they have a viable life and they need to be treated like humans. And mm -hmm. if we keep on saying, no, not in my neighborhood, not in my city, not in my county, those problems won't go away for you. They're still going to be there. The way through it is we have to help them. We have to see their humanity. We have to see our own humanity and understand that it's our responsibility to help take care of people, especially for a country that's, you know, we say we have the highest moral values. And morally, 
the more we see homeless people, the more we become accustomed to it. And the more we're going to allow that to happen. People deserve housing. They deserve to feel good and they deserve to um, be taken care of in that way when they're, they're down on their luck. And just when you understand that most people that are addicted comes from an extreme amount of trauma, we now know that people that suffer from sexual abuse, childhood sexual abuse, are raped as a, a, an adult woman, that you have 26% more PTSD than soldiers that see combat. That's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with unresolved traumas. We need to look at ourselves, at our families, what has happened to that child what's happened to that person that's hurting and see that humanity in them again and be willing to give them a hand up instead of a handout we need to be lifting them up and so that's really been where we the space we've been working from at Toledo Tribes is is just trying to see the whole person rather than diminishing their humanity and thinking they we can throw them away we can't i want to just take a bigger picture look before we go misty because I know the U.S. Senate has had a number of hearings in the last month or so regarding the fentanyl crisis on tribal land across the United States. Um, the most recent one focused on law enforcement and a lack of support for local law enforcement to address drug trafficking in Native communities. There have been other hearings that centered Native voices for the first time, really, in a congressional hearing on this issue. Overall, what do you make of the federal government's response right now? And is there anything that Congress or the feds could do to better support your community and communities across the country that are battling this issue on Native land? Well, yes. Let's start at the state level. We had our um, Centennial Accord where all the tribes come together with the governor. We asked him to do a state of emergency on fentanyl. And he declined. He said that he didn't think it would be useful. He didn't think that it would bring more resources towards the problem. I mean, Lummi Nation just a month ago, two months ago, buried a toddler who got a hold of a fentanyl pill. For us, we're at a crisis. We're burying more people than we buried through COVID. And what I don't like about how the state and federal government are responding to this is that it's almost invisible. This is impacting almost every American household, literally. And our federal government and our state government is doing nothing about it. For me, I go back to the AIDS epidemic. When there was an AIDS epidemic in the 80s and 90s, we learned about it. They taught us about it at school. It, it was part of the health curriculum in my health class. Because that's a way through an epidemic is through education. Because you got to stop the pipeline. You got to stop people from getting sick. And that's not happening. We asked the, the president of the OSPI for Washington State, do you have curriculum on opioid addiction? Yes. What schools are using it? none. What are we doing here? What more, what more do we want to happen? There are families whose lives will be shattered for generations because we have orphaned children. That's happening all across this country. And this problem will go on for generations, even if the drug isn't available because people have the trauma 
from what they went through. And so the federal government has a responsibility in making sure that China and Mexico stop shipping the ingredients that it takes to make fentanyl. And I know that Biden just cut some deal with China about some of these ingredients not shipping them to Mexico. And I'm really grateful for that. But I'm sorry, it needs, we need to go a little bit harder on this. We need to make treatment more accessible. We need to open up more treatment centers. Um, you need to stop pill mills. There's still pill mills happening in pharmacies. You know, there's just really been really lack of oversight by the federal government. And everywhere I go and I talk about this, it's one of the, the things I don't understand is wh why is there silence around this? What is that? And we've lost two tribal members very tragically who were high on opioids. One of our tribal members, Anna Hatch, threw herself in front of the train in Marysville. And when the EMT showed up, she was still alive. And she said, I guess I didn't do it good enough. Mm -hmm. She later died in, later in the week at the hospital from an infection in her throat from the tube. This is, she has four children. They don't have a mom. All of them are under the age of 18. She was young. And this is what we're left to deal with is how do we now comfort these children? How do we make sure that nothing like this ever happens again? It's such a dark space to be in because that drug is so, it makes their mental health decline so quickly that she would do something like that. It's totally out of character for her. You know, that's just one story of many, many, many stories like that. And so when there's silence from the state and from the federal government, you feel abandoned, you know, you, you feel abandoned by that. And so our chair, Terry Gobin, is back in D.C. and they were meeting with the president. There was a tribal summit back there and the talking points were going to be all around fentanyl and what's happening in Indian country. And so hopefully uh, the president will hear what's happening here and hear what's happening across this nation. And they got to step up and do more. I don't expect much out of Congress. It just seems like it's a, you know what, show back there. Um, yeah. But I would hope that they would start to think about those are the constituents that vote for them and how much we're all suffering through this crisis. Yeah. Misty Napiahi is the vice chair of the Tulalip Tribes. Misty, I cannot thank you enough for sharing your personal experience with the opioid crisis and also what Tulalip Tribes is doing. I think it speaks volumes that already in its first year, Quilcita Counseling Center, you're going to double the capacity because of the need for that kind of treatment for methadone treatment and, and medically assisted addiction treatment. And I'm fascinated to hear more about the pallet shelter program as well and the way that you're using wraparound services like housing to support people in addiction recovery. Thank you very much, Misty. And I think that your words are going to mean a lot to people who, who hear them today. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Soundside. This show is only possible because listeners support us. If you're able to give right now, please check out the show notes for a link to donate. And don't forget, you can listen live on KUOW 94.9 FM Seattle at noon and 8 p.m. Monday through Thursday or anytime online at KUOW.org.